Tonight, we're actually, we're not, we've been doing topical stuff all summer, um, taking topics that people throw our way. We do have one that's been submitted that's a really good one that um, Jonathan will tackle at a later point in time that actually has a lot to do with um, what we've been discussing, uh, so much so that because it fits so well with James and ultimately James 5, we might just address a lot of it in uh, the sermon when we get to James 5. And that's somebody threw a question our way on what about the role of confession in the church? How should the church confess its sins? How should, how should we as individuals do that? Um, does it look like us just sitting down with one another and getting coffee? Like, what does that practically look like in the life of the church? Because James chapter five talks about how when you confess your sins, the Lord brings healing. Uh, so uh, we'll let Jonathan tackle that one, whether that's in the sermon itself or on another Sunday night. But I thought... Um, it would be good for us to continue our discussion from today on sin and temptation, but getting more into, all right, how, how do we actually fight against sin and temptation uh, and come to, um, to walk in righteousness more and more and more? So a little bit more of the practicals. There were, there, I, I felt this way as I was working through the sermon today or preparing for it, that I, I felt like I've never had to um, cut more off of what I wanted to say. And even as I was sitting in the pew getting ready to come up here, there are five things that I didn't write down in my notebook that I would have said as well, um, as far as just fighting against sin and coming to enjoy the Lord and walk in righteousness. Because that's what all of scripture does. By the time you get out of Genesis chapter three, what you see is the Lord in the pages of scripture correcting our wrong intuitions about who he is since we sinned against him. So we've got this lie that's entered into our hearts ever since Genesis chapter three, where we distrust the Lord and our desires are towards evil continually. And the Bible is a massive correction uh, of our, our misunderstanding to say that, that no, what we believed in the, in the serpent's deception and as our desires go astray is, is just completely and totally wrong. Everything we need, everything we would desire to be satisfied, to be whole, to be healed is in the Lord himself. And that's what scripture testifies to. And so there's, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 things that I just, I'm like, I wanna say this, I wanna say that, but can't get to all that. So we're just gonna do the things that I remembered when I was writing tonight, some notes for tonight. So if you will, turn with me to Genesis chapter two first, and then uh, we'll go over to three. So first we're gonna look at some of the tactics we see in every single temptation that we experience. I should also say this, I was reminded of this as I was walking over. How many of you, uh, raise your hand if you've read Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Screwtape Letters, wonderful book, um, uh, uh, piece of fiction from, from Lewis where he writes uh, uh, from the vantage point of a senior demon who's instructing this junior demon on how to uh, tempt and lead astray his patient or client. I can't remember the exact term. Was it patient? Patient? Uh, a human being who's come to put their faith in Jesus. Um, one of the things that I experienced as I read through that book, and it could have just been a, a, a heightened sense of awareness, was like I, I felt like as I was reading Screwtape Letters, I started to feel myself being tempted more and more and more. And especially just like I was reading in the book, I was like, I don't wanna read this book anymore. Like, get this out of here. And so there was a part in, in preparing to be talking about sin and temptation where it's just like, I feel like temptation is everywhere. Is, is it always like this just in your face? 
And so what we're gonna do tonight is we'll actually, we're gonna spend some time uh, in prayer together at the end of tonight where we pray for one another, for the church, for the, uh, for the leaders within the church. So I just thought that was a great way to end because if you're anything like me, as, as you think about sin and temptation in your life, you feel you're just, your senses are just so heightened and aware to what's going on around you. And you're like, man, evil and wickedness is everywhere. We desperately need the Lord. So that's a gracious thing that our eyes are open to that, but it's also scary and terrifying. And so we do wanna spend some time in prayer. Uh, so we'll do that at the end. Um, all right, so Genesis chapter two, verse nine. This is a description of the garden. It says this, and out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So when God makes all things and creates all things, what is his description of all things that he has created? It is good, right? And as he finalizes completion, it is very good. So the question then, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, good or bad? Good, it's part of goods, God's good creation. However, God in his wisdom says that for you best to honor me, walk in wisdom and walk in, uh, in a way that, that is pleasing to me and glorifies me, do not eat of this, of this tree. Rather, as gardeners, good gardeners over this, this land, you need to take care of it. You need to, 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 to rule over it and subdue it as I have said in my word in a way that reflects my own character, but do not eat of it. Don't eat of it. Every single tree that's plant, uh, put in the garden is pleasant to, and so notice two things. It's pleasant to the sight and it's good for food. It's extremely important. Pleasant to the sight and good for food, including the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the Lord said, do not eat of that. So then we get to Genesis chapter three and we can kind of work through these verses here and we'll, we'll draw out some of the tactics that we see in every single temptation and some of the things that we so easily fall into. So read with me in Genesis three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to, the, to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's actually, let's, let's stop and pray, and then we'll work through this. Most holy God, we thank you for this evening, for the fellowship that we get to have, for time to spend uh, uh, more time in your word together. We pray for your blessing over the study of your word, and that as we do so, that you would work through your Holy Spirit, um, working in our lives to shape us to be more and more like Jesus Christ, to open our eyes to see him more clearly, that you would bring conviction of sin and comfort uh, in the midst of, of, of struggles, and that you would strengthen us, and you'd give us grace to know your power at work in our lives. So bless this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So look in Genesis 3, verse 1. 
Uh, the serpent says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So one of the first things we can see that's, that's common amongst all temptations that we experience in life is uh, Satan seeking to distort and deceive. What Satan doesn't do is create something and then tempt Adam and Eve with what he has created. It's another thing C.S. Lewis draws out wonderfully in screw tape letters, is to say that for all the work, all of the, the creativity of Satan and all the demons down there in their factories, they have not figured out how to create. All they can do is take the good that God has made and distort it. So here comes Satan in verse one, seeking to distort and deceive. So he's taken what God has created and seeking to distort it and deceive, getting us not to trust in exactly what the Lord says and not to see things as the Lord would have us to see things. And then in verse two and three, we see this, that the word of God is forgotten and just not remembered correctly. So as the serpent says, you shall not eat of any tree in the, uh, sorry, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Eve says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And here we have classic example of not remembering the word of the Lord in adding to the word of the Lord. You could even say that she has an idea of perceived holiness and doing more than what the Lord has commanded. But actually what she's doing is misremembering the word of the Lord, neglecting the word of the Lord and the purity of it. And because of that, she is already falling prey to, to the distorted temptations of Satan, these distorted goods, and starting to believe in the deception. And then in verse four, we see this tactic of Satan. Every single temptation that he brings about, Satan downplays the punishment, always downplays the punishment. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. With every temptation we experience, the punishment or the consequences of it, they're always downplayed in our minds. Right, if we could see the end of our sins, we wouldn't give in to them, or they would at least be much less enticing. Uh, one article uh, um, I love that was written to pastors, I think it's called Brothers, Envision the End of Your Sin. And it was a, a, a type of um, letter or address to these people in seminary after they'd seen a pastor fall into sexual sin. And, and what was encouraged to do is envision the end of your sin because Satan always seeks to downplay the consequences and the punishments of our sin. So just think about sin and temptation and now think about what the end of that would look like if you let it have its way in your life. What would happen? What would your life look like? What would your relationships look like? So envision the end of your sin, that way you stay far away from it. But one of Satan's tactics is to always downplay the consequences. Not only does he downplay the consequences, but he's always holding out a prize as well, which is James 1.12. Blessed are those who remain steadfast under trial, trial, for they will receive this crown of life. Satan is offering life to Adam and Eve, life is, is they think they don't have it. So in verse five, he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In whose image were they created? God's. But because Satan comes in to distort the truth and deceive, now he's holding out this prize of something that was already met and satisfied in the Lord. They were already created in the image of God. 
Everything they need, everything that they would desire is met and provided for in the Lord. Yet Satan and all of his tactics with temptation would say, no, 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 here's this prize. God can't meet this. God's not going to give you this immediate pleasure and satisfaction if you give into this sin, into this desire, into this emotion, into this thought. So Satan holds out this prize. And then Eve does a little bit of cost-benefit analysis, which is what we do, maybe instantaneously, sometimes with much thought, every single time we are tempted. We like to think through, what am I being tempted with? Is it worth it? And what do I think I'll get on the other side? So look in verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, so far so good, right? Because Genesis 2, 9, every tree that God planted in the garden was good for food and pleasant to the sight. But notice, there's something in Genesis 3, 6 that was not in Genesis 2, 9 and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Was that part of the the deal with the fruit of the trees in the garden? That if Adam Adam and Eve ate of them, they would be better, more wise? And so that's again what Satan holds out as prize. When we do this cost-benefit analysis, we think, man, if I just lay hold of this sin and give in to this temptation, it's going to make me better. It's going to make me better, more fit for life, more suited. This is going to satisfy me. This is going to bring something that I am not finding in the Lord. But of course, those are just lies. Because as we know from the pages of scripture, what truly makes us wise and fit to live in this world in a way that is both completely satisfying to us and totally God glorifying It's living according to the word of God. It's living according to his word. But Eve has misremembered, neglected, forgotten the word of the Lord. So she took of its fruit and ate. And look at the consequences in verse seven. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They were shamed. They were now filled with shame. So for all of the promises of sin... No matter how it's dressed up, no matter what kind of cost-benefit analysis we do in those moments of temptation where we're thinking about giving in, no matter what we think it might bring us, ultimately sin always brings us shame. It always brings us shame. And they have to cover themselves up because they're not as they should be. Look over in 1 John. Flip to 1 John chapter 2 with me. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John writes this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and notice this, the desires of the flesh is good for food. The desires of the eyes, it look tasty. And the pride of life, ah, this will make me better. This will make me wise. It is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We see this theme throughout the pages of Scripture that as Adam and Eve, as they are tempted, they are led astray by their eyes. 
and they have these desires, so they see, they want, and then they take. When you go uh, later on in scripture, like uh, I think particularly of when you go to the period of the judges and you read the story of Samson, everything in Samson's life is see, want, take. See, want, take. That's the pattern, especially in the Old Testament. When you look at, oh, Achan and Joshua, the sin of Achan, he sees this treasure that he's supposed to destroy. He sees it, he wants it, and he takes it, and he's destroyed. And, and nothing has changed. John is warning the early believers about this exact thing. Do not love the things of this world because all of it is passing away. All of it leads to death. If you love the things of the world, the, the love of the Father, is, the Father is not abiding in you. Don't live according to your sight, according to your desires. Live according to the word of the Lord and the will of God, and that's where you'll see life. One of the things that's so interesting is that when you look uh, or, or seeing Genesis 1 and 2, you have the understanding that God is walking with humanity in the cool of the day and they were enjoying this communion. And so Adam and Eve were able to see and behold God in some form or fashion. Yet they are led astray by their sight. And because of that, we are now people, we are now Christians, or if we are Christians, our primary sense organ of the faith is not sight, but it's hearing, it's faith. We have to live by what we hear rather than by what we see. Because as we live by what we see, our desires are going to lead us astray constantly. But when we live by what we hear and primarily the word of God, then we will know life. Then we will walk in life and in wisdom. This is really, I mean, this has been the story of humanity, but it's extremely interesting, just as a quick rabbit trail. When you consider life today, what's, uh, what, what's Apple marketing? for just thousands of dollars for, for no reason. What, what are the fanciest types of video games out there right now? What are people doing? Virtual reality, because we would rather live by what we see and whatever we can put in front of us by what we see, that's what's best for us. Because I can put whatever I want there. I can take away all the junk, right? And so humanity is just devolving more and more into that by living by our sight. But we as believers cannot do that. We have to live by what we hear and especially the word of the Lord. So John Owen had this phrase then. So as we see these tactics, then what do we do? How do we, let's do some practicals then. John Owen had this phrase, be killing sin or sin will be killing you in a wonderfully difficult book to read, The Mortification of Sin. <laughs> uh, Man, that dude could, he could put some words down. Uh, Snowbird, uh, SWO, as we call it, it's a, a place we go. Um, the youth goes in the winter for our winter retreat, and they're a bunch of country boys. And their phrase, to paraphrase John Owen, is uh, take a day off and get mauled by a lion. And it comes from the story of the prophet uh, in 1 Kings, who is a prophet of the Lord who goes and prophesies to Israel, I believe, and he gets led astray by a false prophet and as punishment for it, on his way home, he gets mauled and killed by a lion. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Take a day off, get mauled by a lion. However you'd like to phrase it, whatever uh, you know, meets your fancy for, for phrases, that's, that, that's what sin is. You know, as, as we make peace with it, as we allow it in our lives, we are playing with what brings us death. We're playing with what brings us death. So then how do we put sin to death? 
All right, let's go over to John, and we're just going to fly through some passages of Scripture that I think can be helpful to us. So John 6, verse 63. So again, what first needs to happen to we who are so drawn to sin and temptation is we need the Spirit to do a work in us. We're going we're gonna to move pretty fast through here, so if you're a note-taker, you can jot these down and, and uh, read them later on, but um, let's, let's fly through these. So John 6, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So the first thing that needs to happen is we who are in death and in sin need to be brought to life. And our flesh is no help at all because our flesh is only desirous of sin. And so what needs to happen is for the Spirit to come and give life to us. It is the Spirit who gives life. And so Jesus says, these words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. They are life-giving. Go over to John chapter 8, verse 31. John 8, verse 31, Jesus says this about his word. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We want to know freedom from sin. We need to abide in the word of God. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus, an- Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So we need the spirit to bring life. And as the spirit brings life and this word that I've spoken to you, a spirit and life, Jesus says, as we allow the word of God to abide in us, the word of God is going to do a work in us by the spirit. The word of God is going to be active in bringing us out of slavery to sin and into freedom in Christ Jesus so that we can walk in a way that's pleasing to him. So then, how's this gonna happen? John chapter 14 Verse 16, Jesus says this, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. You guys have little footnotes uh, for helper there or even a different translation? It's an interesting word to translate. Advocate, counselor, probably have another one. Helper, so helper, advocate, counselor, good. Sometimes comforter. All right, um, so uh, I, forget, I forget who it was, but essentially it's, it's this friend with you on your side. The Holy Spirit comes to us as one sent from Jesus, being to us what Jesus was in the flesh. He becomes our helper, our counselor, and not counselor as in, and this is an, I don't mean this in a derogatory way at all, but like when you go to a counseling session, Right, Not that type of counselor, but think of like a war counselor who's, who's giving you wisdom and advice and how best to walk in a way that is, is pleasing to the Lord and is contrary to the schemes of the evil one. So he counsels our way uh, and he's our advocate. Right? So he's pleading our case before the Father. He's coming along our sides. He's inter- our side. He's interceding for us. That's what the Spirit is for us. So he will be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows knows him. You will know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So the spirit who gives life 
And again, this, this word that I speak to you today, our spirit and life, and this word that comes and abides in us that sets us free, it's going, to be, it's going to be active in our lives through the helper whom Jesus is going to send. We see exactly that then in verse, look in verse 26 and then we'll flip to uh, 16. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Along those lines, look in verse, uh, chapter 16, verse seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So here we get to the heartbeat, really, of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, or everything that the Father speaks and declares to his, uh, to his people is spoken to, spoken through his Son. Jesus is the word of God. And this word that I give you today is spirit and life. He gives life through his word. And if you abide in his word, then you're truly his disciples and the truth will come and set you free. And Jesus then, he says, it's better for you. It is to your advantage that I go to the Father because if I go to the Father, I will send the spirit. And the spirit, Jesus is flesh and blood never to remove that any longer. He is flesh and blood. It is to our advantage that Jesus goes to the Father because he will send the Spirit and the Spirit will be with us and dwell in us, all right? Being more than what Jesus can be in flesh and blood. So we have the Father and the Son with us by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth who takes all that the Father has declared to the Son and declares it to us. So the Holy Spirit takes the words of God and presses them into our hearts and into our minds that we would know life, that we would know freedom from sin and not be enslaved to it any longer. We are not hopeless against sin and temptation. We have this Holy Spirit, helper, advocate, counselor, who would counsel us in the ways of God. So then we go to the epistles We'll go over to uh, Ephesians chapter one and we'll see more of this. Ephesians chapter one, verse three. We'll tie a nice bow up on this, I promise. Hope, hope everybody's tracking. Okay, Ephesians one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that, here's a purpose statement, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So do we want to put sin to death? Well, how do we do it? 
Well, one of the ways in which we do it is what the Lord is by taking what the Lord has provided for us and then living that out. And what has he provided for us? He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the Holy Spirit. Notice in verse three, he gives us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that we should be holy and blameless before him. So how does he communicate every blessing to us? And that's found in the word spiritual. Whenever you look in Paul's writings and you come across the word spiritual, what that is getting at is that whatever is being talked about is being communicated or given by the Holy Spirit. So all of the blessings, all of the love, all of the the freedom bringing truth that's found in Jesus Christ is poured into our lives through the Holy Spirit. If we have the Holy Spirit, is he not going to do that work? Right? We are not hopeless against sin. The Holy Spirit is going to do that, which is why then Paul would pray in Ephesians chapter three. This is just incredible. Notice in Ephesians chapter three, verse uh, 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. Isn't that what we need to put sin to death? Just, yes, strengthen me with power, God. Then I'm gonna put sin to death. Then, then I can lace up my bootstraps and get to work and just kill it all. But notice what this strengthened with power in the spirit looks like. This is, this is what this looks like. Strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So what does it look like when the Holy Spirit comes in power and strengthens us with power? It's not the goosebumps when we sing. It looks like Christ dwelling in our hearts. And so the ultimate way that we actually come to put sin to death is again what we're seeing throughout John in this this stream of teaching. And then in Ephesians chapter one and Ephesians chapter three is, is that the Holy Spirit will come with power so that we can see Jesus. So that Jesus would take root in us And that's why he then prays that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So what's going to lead us to the fullness of God? What's going to lead us to maturity? What's going to lead us to Christ likeness? The love of God filling us the love of God the Father in Christ Jesus the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we allow the word of God to abide in us, as we allow the word of God to abide in us, the Holy Spirit takes the words of Christ and he works it powerfully into our lives, changing our desires, empowering us to walk in righteousness that we should be holy and blameless before him. And God the Father doesn't supply some of our needs and say, you go get the rest. He gives us every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. They're at our disposal. They're at our disposal. So then you get these patterns in scripture of of Paul later on in the epistles. Um, He's saying, put off this, 
put off the old man in this way and put on in this way. Get rid of this, put on this. In Colossians chapter two, we'll, we'll just save time and I'll just reference this. At the end of Colossians chapter two, he says that rule building or, or rule following, right? They, they have this law keeping, it has an appearance of wisdom, but it's of no indulgence in stopping the flesh, or sorry, no power in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And then he transitions to Colossians chapter, or we have Colossians chapter three, where he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, set your minds on things that are above. What's the answer to stopping the indulgence of the flesh? It's not strict rule keeping. It's not you putting laws in your life to protect you and guide you and you mustering up the strength to get over it. It's seeing Christ. It's having our hearts and minds set on him. Romans chapter 13, verse 14, if I could recommend memorizing a passage from tonight, it'd be that one. Make no provision for the flesh, but put on Jesus Christ. Therefore, make no provision for the flesh, but put on Jesus Christ. What's the answer to you not just setting a feast out for sin and temptation in your life? It's putting on Jesus Christ and his love. 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about how the more we come to see Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. The more we see Jesus, the more we are being sanctified. Do we want to be sanctified? Do we want to look more like him? That happens through us coming to see him more clearly. And that does not happen apart from God's word and God's spirit. It doesn't happen apart from God's word and God's spirit. So, so youth come to me all the time. I'm struggling with sin. Like I just feel cold and, and far from the Lord. I, you know, I just wonder like if he loves me and say, all right, well, let's, let's talk about this, all right? You, are you struggling with sin? Well, yeah, I'm struggling with sin in these areas and I just can't seem to get over it. All right, all right. Are you in the word? Are you in prayer? Well, no. I'm like, well, well, there is no freedom. There is no life apart from us coming to God's word and abiding in it and dwelling in it accompanied by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. So how is it that we put sin to death? The word of God by the spirit. So, I mean, what is, what is Paul, when he's talking about taking up the, uh, the armor of God, what's our weapon? What's the one weapon we have there? Sword of the spirit. Right, the word of God. And he says, and then he goes on to say, do all of this in prayer. Right, we take up the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there, that is how we put sin to death. All right, real quick, last thing that's really important. That's touching on an individual. This is what we need to do. I'll do this real quick and then we'll open up for any comments and then we'll pray, okay? We're doing okay. All right, Hebrews chapter three. Let's look at Hebrews three and Hebrews 10. And then I'll reference a couple others to close this, okay? Hebrews chapter three, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What's another way in which we put sin to death in our lives? one another, the fellowship. I am susceptible to being hardened and deceived 
by sin. I am not above sin. I need the word, I need the spirit, but I need even those two things with you all. I need to be exhorted by all of you just as I would love by God's power and grace to exhort you so that we would not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then Hebrews chapter 10, on the positive side of things, we say this in Hebrews 10 verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Fellowship. We cannot, we cannot neglect to meet together because as we meet together, we're both protecting, we're, we are both protecting each other from the deceitfulness of sin and simultaneously provoking one another to greater love and good works. But if we neglect to meet together, then how can we do that? But even more than that, some of us just, I mean, we find going to church easy, but how can you protect people from the deceitfulness of sin and how can you provoke them to greater love and good works if you're not really fellowshipping with the one another, all right? We can't get that from just going in and out. So it means being here a little early or awkwardly uh, lingering a little late. Who can I talk to? Who can I get to know? Who can I go out to lunch with? Who Who can I go and have a Bible study with so that we can discuss these things, so that I can be protected, so that I can be stirred up, so that I can protect others and stir them up as well? We need that fellowship. Write down um, 1 John 1, 6 through 10 and Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Those are wonderful passages that talk about the importance of confessing our sins to one another and how that brings us into the light. Galatians 6, uh, 1 and 2 is specifically talking about how as we see brothers and sisters caught in transgression of sin, we ought to seek to restore one another with a spirit of gentleness. And thus we fulfill the law of Christ Meaning this, I fulfill the law of Christ as I allow my brother to lead me up out of sin. But I also fulfill the law of Christ as I lead my brother out of sin. We both need, we need to come confessing our sins to one another and when we are the stronger brother in the room, we need to help carry their burdens and bringing them out of that sin. In doing both, we fulfill the law of Christ. So we see one another. We'll close with this passage, Hebrews chapter four. It's a good thing to remember in all of this. Then I'll turn to you guys. Hebrews chapter four, verse 14. So in the midst of our battles against sin and temptation, as we're seeking to put sin to death and walk according to the wisdom of God and not according to the deceptions of the world, of the serpent, and the desires of our own flesh, this is what we can remember. Hebrews four, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, the throne, as we come before the throne in prayer to God, is always, always a throne of grace, where 
always we can come to our Father and expect to only get all the spiritual blessings we need to walk in a way that is holy and blameless before him, that we might find grace and mercy in our times of need. Jesus is the only one who's ever perfectly resisted temptation. So he sympathizes with our weakness, but he is perfectly strong, the only one who can work his strength in our lives that we would resist temptation as well. That's who we come to. We need to see Jesus. That's what we all desperately need. And that happens by the Spirit, in the Word, and especially as we enjoy fellowship with one another. So there's just some, some short practicals, and hopefully some of that's helpful. I'll turn to you guys. Thoughts, questions, comments, or more specifically, we'll just take one or two. Is there one thing in particular that has helped you in your faith in putting sin to death? And it might be something that we talked about, and you just want to like shout it out. as like, yes, that. One-on-one discipleship. Yeah, good. Yeah, one-on-one discipleship. This saved my life. Sarah? Yeah, our eyes lead us astray, and they need to be set on Jesus. Paul? Yeah, yeah, hold fast that confession. Yeah, let us hold fast our confession. I need you guys to hold on to my hands as I hold on to this confession, and we'll do that for each other, right? We'll all hold on together. All right, how about we close in prayer? So let's do this. Um, let's close in prayer, specifically praying for Edgewood in general. So for the members of the body, that the Lord would protect us against sin and temptation and lead us and guide us in righteousness. And secondly, let's pray for, uh, for the leaders. So as a pastor and deacon, passages like this and, and teachings like this are just are terrifying. They, they're just, they serve as good warnings because we are held responsible for handling the word of God and walking in a way that's an example to the body. And so pray that the Lord would protect the deacons and the elders here at Edgewood, that we would walk in a way that would be God-glorifying and not bring shame upon the church as well. So how about we, we just close in prayer? You can either um, pray silently where you're at. If you're near someone and want to pray with someone, you can do that too. Um, but let's just take a few moments, and then I'll close our time in prayer together. Most holy God, as we... Um, are able to come to you in prayer. We thank you that because of what Jesus has done for us, as we come before your throne, it is a throne of grace for us where we might find all the grace and all the mercy we need um, when we are in times of need. So Lord God, we do pray for your blessing over this church here at Edgewood, that you would continue to refine us and sanctify us, that we might look more like Jesus, your son, and so that we um, would truly glorify you in this community. We pray, Lord God, that we would not live or conduct our lives uh, as a church body in any way that would uh, be shameful and uh, in ways that would not be above reproach, but you, you would increasingly uh, produce within us Christ-likeness so that as we live our lives together, we would glorify you in all that we do. We pray, especially for the leaders here at Edgewood that you have blessed us with, would you protect us and keep us from doing anything uh, and living in any way that would bring shame upon your name? Would you protect us, keep us, preserve us? Lord God, we pray that you would lead us not into temptation, but we pray, Lord God, that you would lead all of us along paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Lord God, you are our good shepherd, and in you we have no lack 
you truly give us all we need in Christ Jesus by the power of your spirit to walk in a way that is holy and blameless before you. And we pray that you would bring us more and more into the knowledge of that truth and that reality. Um, Lord God, we are not impoverished as believers, um, but Lord God, you meet and supply our every need um, and superabundance in Jesus Christ. So give us grace to abide in your word. We pray that your spirit would be powerfully at work and we pray that you would grow our fellowship and unity with one another, that you would strengthen us all, that we can help one another hold fast to the confession of our faith, that we would protect one another from the deceitfulness of sin, and that you would give us grace to stir one another up to greater love and good works. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.